I fear that education is going to fail. The educational system is going to fail them because here you have a complete paradigm shift in how education is done. For today's episode of Coffee with Closers, we had an insightful conversation with Armando Viteri, a prominent figure in the field of artificial intelligence and machine learning. With a remarkable career, began in the early 80s at HP and Sun Microsystem, Viteri brings a wealth of experience and expertise to the table. As the CEO of New Block, a leading company in the field, Viteri has spearheaded groundbreaking advancements in the realm of generative AI and predictive analytics. In this episode, we will dive deep into the practical applications of AI for business leaders. Viteri shares invaluable insights, strategies, and real-world examples that will empower executives to harness the full potential of AI in their organizations. So stay tuned for our conversation. So every entrepreneur, obviously, Armando has an interesting story of how they overcame obstacle. I was looking over your LinkedIn. I saw you started your career in HP, then went on to work at Sun Microsystems, and you were also in the VC world for a little while. Founded a couple of different tech service companies before, and now you're running this AI consulting and uh, technology inter integration and implementation company. So you must have some interesting story of how you got here. Can you share with our audience a little bit about your journey? So, uh, yes, I started off by my early career. I, I was an MIT computer science person, although it's been a lot of years since I've done anything really technical. I joined HP and my parents were very happy with me because my dad was a career IBMer. So he liked the idea that I was going to a nice, big, stable company. And then much to their horror, I wound up joining this little tiny startup that nobody had ever heard of called Sun Microsystems, which I still think is the second fastest company ever reached the Fortune 500. So that turned, I was there for 10 years. I joined when it was 9 million in sales and left it when it was 4 billion in sales. So wow. an incredible early career experience. From there, there I be, was the, the founding VP of sales for a software company that, that did well. We went from first revenue to an IPO. I think it was in 20 months, something like that. It wound up being ninth best performing stock on NASDAQ that year. So clearly a product of the 90s mm -hmm. as we're heading toward the dot boom era. However, that was another fantastic experience. So between those two early career experiences, I was really hooked. But of course, Universe looked down on me and said, it's time. He's developed a little bit too much hubris. So it's time for him to have a really miserable startup experience. And in fact... <laughs> that I, I founded the first real-time locating systems company. And that was a very, very difficult company. We were able to raise a lot of money and unfortunately it was not a successful company as much as we, we tried. From there, I got involved with an investor group that asked me to be the turnaround CEO for a, an RFID company. And that's what got me out to Phoenix. And then from there, I progressed into a private equity group that owns about six, eight, companies in total. Some of them are startup companies within our portfolio that serve different markets like academic publishing and supplies, used cars to places like CarMax and Carvana. For example, the thing that glues these companies together though, is that they all use AI, AI at the core of what they do as companies, even though they're serving very different markets. Mm -hmm. And then in addition to that, we have services companies, one of which wound up, we wound up having a focus in on AI, mostly as a result of my, my CTO, who's an absolutely brilliant PhD in AI about seven years ago, came to the partnership and said, Hey, 
I know you guys have been through a couple of these hype waves in AI. This time it's going to be different. This time it's real. And so that allows allowed us to start investing into AI as we kind of progress from the deep learning phase into the transformer phase into the large language model phase. And now, and suddenly ChatGPT was unleashed on the world and suddenly the world changed. But fortunately for us, we'd been to the party early and as a result, we gained a, a tremendous amount of actual deployment experience, production use of AI. Mm -hmm. So, in fact, um, an awful lot of the postings that, that I do on LinkedIn have to do with avoiding a lot of the content around AI, AI seems to center around, hey, look at this cool thing that ChatGPT can do, or mm -hmm. it's around, oh, my God, we're all going to die. Mm -hmm. It seems to be 99% it <laughs> falls into those two clumps. But there's relatively little is talking about real business use cases, how this actually transforms companies in different sectors. So that's a lot of kind of the threads that I've been trying to add based on our own experience for actually deploying this stuff. Most certainly. And I do really want to get into the specifics of how businesses can leverage AI and what are some ramifications of not even investing into it, right? Certainly want to get into that. But before we get there, obviously, you've been in the enterprise software world, enterprise technology space for from the early 80s, have seen the ups and downs in you know, the dot-com boom era. You saw the rise in, like you said, companies that went from like a couple of million dollars in revenue to $4 billion in revenue, all within that same time frame. So what are some biggest lessons you've learned, either being in the enterprise world as a business leader or and now actually a founder running, you know, having run a couple of companies yourself? Well, there's many layers to that question, right? But, yes. but I would say number one lesson learned that I've seen is arguably this is the fourth great technological wave. You could argue that steam was one, electrification was a second, the information age, PC, internet was a third, and now we're entering the, the age of AI. Mm -hmm. And certainly I'm, I'm now old enough as you can tell by my bald head and my gray beard, I'm now old enough that at least I experienced the last wave, the, mm -hmm. the movement toward having desktop computers and then having them network together and then the advent of the internet and the like. Mm -hmm. And certainly one of the things that I've seen is that when a technological wave hits industry, the likelihood that, that companies survive that are laggards in understanding implications of that the likelihood that they survive is quite low. And mm -hmm. so you can certainly do dozens and dozens and dozens of examples of companies that did not survive the mainframe to mini computer to workstation to PC, those various kind of mini waves that happen. There is so much carnage along the way. Mm -hmm. And a lot of it came down to people being very stuck in an old way of looking at the world when the world had actually changed. So I would say the number one thing is for anybody that hasn't woken up to the fact that this is this is not a little wave, tidal wave, this is a big tidal wave that's coming, that's mm -hmm. fundamental, not just at the business level, but at the societal level. I certainly recommend that, that you, you do your own personal exploration, your own personal analysis to figure out what the implications are for both you in your own career, but also you as a business person within the context of your company. Yeah, I think there's a lot of people that just, you know, sleep at the wheel almost and, and just let these things kind of pass by, hoping that, <laughs> that this is just a fad, but it's really not the case. And I know I still, in the world of business that I'm in, deal with a lot of founders. You know, some of them are like second generation business owners, you know, third generation took over the business from 
grandfather who started it, and I see that your organization as well deals with a lot of manufacturing companies, maybe much larger than the ones that maybe we deal with, but they're so resistant to change with the technological innovation. So they are you know, starting to adopt ERP system or CRM system, and, and it's still a big change for them, right? They're like digitizing their processes or implementing tools and technology to measure, and they're still using a lot of the boards and writing down on a piece of paper with the order processing and things like that. There's still companies that do it, and it surprises me even today. So like the, what you just described is definitely, if they don't wake up and change, they're going to become obsolete for sure. Uh, this is, this no, isn't going yeah. to stop for anybody. Yeah. And, you know, again, even more so than even the last wave, the internet era. So yeah. I think this is, this one is much more directly tied to the financial performance of a company. Most so certainly. let's suppose an incredibly oversimplistic analogy, but for the sake of simplicity, mm-hmm. I want to approach this like an economist, right? If you make mm-hmm. the problem statement simple enough, then you can figure out what the ramifications are. So let's suppose that you're a hundred million dollar company mm-hmm. and you're throwing off 10 million in EBITDA. And let's suppose that you have a white collar workforce that winds up costing you HR costs about 45 billion or so. Mm-hmm. So if you can get that workforce 30% more productive, mm-hmm you all of a sudden, if you chose the path of slimming down the HR required to operate that $100 million company, all of a sudden you're throwing off $25 million in EBITDA. Mm-hmm. How do you compete against that? Yeah. Okay, So that company now has the ability to either retain its workforce, but be so much more overwhelmingly productive mm-hmm. in what they actually produce is so overwhelmingly beyond the competitive norm that they crush the competition that way. Mm-hmm. The other way they could do is they could reduce costs. Unfortunately, that is one of the paths that some companies, I don't think this is the correct strategic path, but one of the paths that certainly companies are going to go choose is reducing their human resource costs. And all of a sudden they become a juggernaut in terms of financial ability. So now they can, they can underprice any of their competition if they want, or they just can throw off an incredible amount of cash. Mm-hmm. How do you compete against that? And yeah. now that scenario, once again, an overly yeah. simplistic scenario is what happens to businesses. It applies everything from an SMB to an enterprise, right? Yeah. So I guess it doesn't apply to the corner ice cream store. Mm-hmm. But other than that, it dramatically changes the competitive and the financial environment ecosystem in which these companies all exist. Yeah. And further than that, you know, even that's kind of the most simplistic case. The more interesting case is that we are evolving. Businesses are starting to evolve. And in some cases, as you said, it's surprising some people that haven't woken up to this yet, but it's equally surprising to me how fast some of these big, big companies are moving in this direction. But you have even very large companies now starting to think through, hey, our number one asset that we have as a company our number one non-human asset that we own is Mm -hmm. data correlations and workflows. Mm -hmm. Those are the three things that we have. Mm -hmm. So what can we use to tie all those together? Well, it's an AI core, a generative core, a foundation model Mm -hmm. that ties together the data, access the data, creates the correlations and manages the workflows between the various organizations within the company, Mm -hmm. right? Well, that evolves into this idea, and I hate to use this term for obvious sets of reasons, but it becomes the corporate brain, Mm -hmm. right? 
And I think that's a model that we will eventually, actually surprisingly quickly moving toward for a lot of companies. And I think eventually most companies, certainly the ones that are forward thinking and, and flourish in this new world. So that happens at the enterprise level, but even at the SMB level, mm-hmm. the kinds of companies that can't afford to do these massive proprietary bespoke foundation models, even for those companies, there's a whole range of startup companies that are coming up in the world right now that are mm-hmm. they're busily working 24 hours a day to kind of crank out the code and get it out there that are vertical market focused. So they'll take on entire vertical sectors mm-hmm. and offer not a bespoke for the enterprise, for the company, but bespoke for the vertical that that company sits in. Mm-hmm. And so there's a whole range of brand new companies that will come to fore. And how much of this kind of evolution winds up landing in the laps of the incumbent suppliers, who knows? But I do think for those startups that target it correctly, it's a very rich mine. It's a very rich vein to go mine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think what you just described is like the during the industrial automation age, a lot of the blue collar workers were the ones who were being put out of business. Right, being replaced by you know automation and you know robotics that were just taking over their jobs, but with this AI revolution and this you know machine learning and all of those things, now you have the white collar workers either being replaced or uh, making them even more efficient and productive, and having like you said more insights for them to do their job even more accurately. So the output becomes even you know 10x if not a lot more. Uh, yeah, so certainly, no, I, I think it's reasonable to say depending on on job categories, mm-hmm. you're right. This is a white collar, a technology that affects white collar workers disproportionate to how it affects blue collar workers. So you're mm-hmm. right. And in some sense, there is there is an element of people are reacting more to this wave mm-hmm. because the white collar workers are reacting in a way that they saw their blue collar mm-hmm. brethren react and they didn't care so much. Yeah. Right? So now it's yeah. a little bit more personal. <laughs> So I think there is a certain element of, I I don't know how to describe that, but uh, discomfort around that. Having said that, I do think that some set of companies are going to make the mistake Mm -hmm. of focusing in on reduced cost versus increased productivity. Because there's two ways to go on this, Mm -hmm. right? Those companies that I think strategically are smart about this will retain their high quality Mm -hmm. human talent to make them a competitive juggernaut. Yeah. as opposed to just simply looking at the accounting method of solving this problem. And I think those are the ones that are a little bit more strategically forward thinking about what this all means. Most certainly. Yeah. And I'm seeing some of the CEOs are very outspoken about what they're about to do too. Like they're there. Some of them are very outspoken that this is going to reduce their workforce. And like you said, some are mm-hmm. thinking of yeah. it like, Hey, how do we leverage this to get more productivity and a better competitive advantage than just to reduce our bottom line, right? Back to the point that you made earlier, which I think mm-hmm. is exactly right. You're, depending on the job category for white mm-hmm. collar workers, this implies anywhere from a 20 to an 80% improvement in productivity. Wow. So wow. The, the HR impact is substantial. Mm-hmm. But again, you know, I think that this is, this is a great opportunity for companies to innovate faster, mm-hmm. to keep ahead of competition through innovation, not through accounting methods. Mm-hmm. Most certainly. So obviously some people are hearing some of these, you know, these acronyms and may or may not really fully understand it. Uh, like you said, right in November of last year, OpenAI decided to announce the chat GBT and it became a common 
conversation topic now with with anywhere you turn somebody's yeah. talking about you know artificial intelligence and machine learning and all of those things so can you give like a quick you know definition of what is artificial intelligence what is machine learning what is natural language processing or even i think some of the content on your side i've read about predictive analytics uh, which is also an even you know bigger topic so can you give like a quick synopsis to what those things well, are well sure but let's step back a minute mm-hmm. so this pet peeve you know, ever since ChatGPT happened, large language models seems to be the only thing people want to talk about, mm-hmm. which is a, an incredible disservice because it's not that the first or second wave of AI did not produce useful tools. Mm-hmm. They just didn't produce the level of utility that the hype suggested they would. Mm-hmm. However, all of those tools still exist. Mm-hmm. So as a result, a, a nice, a better way to look at AI is not simply around generative AI. It's to look at AI as being a tool bag. Mm-hmm. And in that tool bag, there's a whole bunch of existing tools, predictive analytics, mm-hmm. reinforcement learning. There's, there's all kinds of tools, one of which is generative AI in the form of large language models, foundation models. Mm-hmm. So for a business, for any application, it's more than likely going to be a combination of those tools mm-hmm. and traditional software met, uh, methods that wind up yielding the best possible results in terms of the utility of the application. Mm-hmm. So, so yes, there is a whole grab bag of these things. And in the end, what, what generative AI, what foundation models can do is truly remarkable. I mean, I don't want to take away from it. It is a step change in functionality. But again, Mm -hmm. the emphasis is that it's not the only tool. It is a tool, a foundational tool on which I build a whole set of agents or assistants now that we're in, in the age of agents being developed. Mm -hmm. And those agents may well use lots of different techniques, Mm -hmm. right? Now, what we've seen so far has been pretty much limited only to text to text generative models in the form of GPT or BARD, et cetera. And we've also seen text to image mm-hmm. kinds of stuff, as you see from Stability AI. What's, what becomes very interesting with these tools is as they become multimodal, my ability to be able to handle image to text, text to image, or any, uh, or to video or to et cetera, et cetera, mm-hmm. to sound, to audio production, music production, Etc. as these tools kind of widen mm-hmm. in terms of their, again, their ability to handle these multiple sorts of inputs and outputs, it becomes that much more interesting. So, and that's certainly kind of the general trend line that you're going to see in a lot of these foundation models is that movement toward multimodal use. Mm-hmm. And already you start seeing, oh, I think a lot of, a lot of the audience may have experienced the fake Drake that was out just a few weeks ago where someone was able to fake a pretty good production of Drake and The Weeknd mm-hmm. doing a single together. And the quality of it was actually quite good. Mm-hmm. Well, at this point, certainly the tools are there for doing using AI techniques to be able to produce that high quality audio music mm-hmm. in a pretty imitative way, right? Mm-hmm. Pretty mimicky way. But you're also starting to see already people starting to produce, doing the very earliest forms of video production, mm-hmm. even some rudimentary commercials. Today, those commercials, the, the commercial grade commercials are AI assisted in the way they're produced. But, you know, we're very short amounts of time 
certainly on the order of two to five years before video gets fully AI enabled video production starts coming online as well. And then that opens up a whole new range of additional applications mm-hmm. in education, in the movie industry, etc. Mm-hmm. So there's the core set of tools. Those tools are expanding their capabilities pretty dramatically right now. And so the world changes pretty fundamentally in, in what we are able to do with these newly, these, these continually improved tools over the next few years. So I know earlier you talked about like for every business, you have the data, you have the correlations and you have the workflows. Those are kind of the things you need to break up your business into those core areas and then start to see where does some of these modeling or these technological innovation can be applied to gain either efficiency or competitive advantage or whatnot. So for, you know, speaking to those business leaders who are just trying to grapple with what the heck does this mean for us and not just thinking of like, oh, I, I need to go buy an AI software. Like how do they... How could they start to think practically areas that they can apply that sort of a framework to see where is the optimization opportunity or where is the where do they need to invest to take advantage of these technology innovations? This is complex. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, you kind of peel back the layers and how do you reduce this down to the practical? I'll tell you how we do it. This is simply an example of how we do it. We typically do is we'll go into an enterprise customer. In the last few years, it was at the departmental level because there wasn't that much in the same level of interest in AI as there is now. But now with the interest bubbling up, now it's more at the C level. Mm-hmm. And we get access to these companies at the C level. We do a departmental level review of where the pain points are that exist within the company. Mm-hmm. We then consult with the C level manager to say, all right, here are your corporate priorities. Here's how the corporate priorities map against the pain points at the departmental level Mm -hmm. of this list. These are the ones that could be affected by AI that could be improved by AI. So let's come up with a tactical roadmap of how we address application by application. But at the same time, within the context that this is a roadmap of a variety of assistance and agents that are happening at the departmental level that should strategically be glued together through a, some, in my view, a bespoke foundation model at the mm-hmm. core of the company. So that over time, you, as more and more of these assistants and agents get built, eventually you get a company completely connected to the data, using those AI tools to create the correlations and managing the workflows between the departments. Mm-hmm. And that is the roadmap that may take a while to implement. And it comes mm-hmm. down to C-level management of which assistants, which agents are the ones that need to be developed first based on, on corporate priorities. So we focus in on a roadmap that is purely tactical, immediate problems that can be solved, but within the context of a strategic deployment so that the company winds up in the right position in terms of their IT infrastructure at the end of the implementation of that roadmap. Makes sense. So are there any, without maybe disclosing your customers, is there some sort of a practical example of something where you had implemented, you found the need or the opportunity to implement something that how that helped them? Is there some sort of a story of a successful implementation maybe you can share as a, as a practical? Well, I can't disclose the name of the company, mm-hmm. but this is a great example. There was this one company that we were working with that it was, is a hardware manufacturer and produced units in the many millions a year. Mm-hmm. Those units needed substantial amounts of testing time before they could be released. Mm -hmm. 
Okay. And I, I believe the number was 72 hours worth of, worth of testing. Mm -hmm. So now when you're producing millions of units and it requires 72 hours of testing, mm. you get the idea of how many acres of racks of this stuff you need. Mm -hmm. Well, for, I think it, it was something on the order of about for $300,000 or so, they were able to create or we created for them an AI application that was able to predict with 93% accuracy mm. within three hours, whether mm. that device was going to fail or not. So only 7% of their entire production went through the 72 hour testing process. Mm. You could just imagine the enormous impact to the bottom line for that manufacturer based on what was something on the order of about $300,000 of development investment. Hmm. So there's lots of those kind of point solution kinds of examples you can come up with. And again, the up until recently, the conversation has been all about, at least for us, mm -hmm. the conversation has been all about those kind of tactical individual solutions. Mm -hmm. It's only now with the great awakening around AI that's happened only in the last few months, that people are now starting to talk about AI strategically. So the sort of implementations that we're, we're in, in conversations on mm -hmm. are of a much larger scale, both in terms of kind of size of the implementations, but also kind of strategic importance to the company than what we, the, the kind of work that we're getting three, four years ago, even, even, even six, nine months ago. Obviously the, the advancement is just going to continue to, to happen. So is there any predictions that you have of where this is headed? in the next, you know, immediate future? Well, you know, let's pick which lens to use. Okay. Mm -hmm. From the individual white collar workers perspective, all white collar workers will wind up with an assistant. Mm -hmm. Okay. And I do think that you wind up segregating a personal assistant away from a work assistant. Mm -hmm. Okay. In a sense, my mobile phone is a personal assistant. Mm -hmm. So building on the personal phone kind of model, we all are looking at our screens a thousand times a day, right? You're going to wind up building much more of a deeper relationship between you and your personal assistants, which may or may not continue with a mobile phone kind of a smartphone kind of interface. However, in the work environment, you're going to wind up with assistants to do your daily tasks, right? So that will wind up as a result of having that assistant or that agent that understands what I'm working on, understands the workflows within my organization, understands the tedium level of tasks that everybody has to do. Mm -hmm. By streamlining all that, that allows me to free up my work away from the tedious and mm -hmm. onto the more productive, the more mm -hmm. creative. Because at the end of the day, you always do need the prompt. You have to admit the thought, the process, the direction has to be initiated by a human being. And so I think the future, to answer your question, this future of an augmentative AI, mm -hmm. AI that is an assistant to me, either personally in my personal life or in my work life, becomes kind of integral to who I am and how I process all my tasks in my life. Mm -hmm. So the biggest question becomes is how deeply tied is that assistant or that augment to me? Okay. So in the current way of doing it. You can easily imagine that right now it's a text, you know, for ChatGPT, I'm using a text box in interface, mm -hmm. or you can easily see a transition of that into voice, mm -hmm. right? So having a much more natural language interface. So that's a pretty easy transition to make. Mm 
but even that is a pretty low bandwidth channel, right? So already there's multiple companies, certainly notably people like Neuralink, that are trying to make the, the in integration between a brain and its computational assistant much deeper, much higher bandwidth. Whether or not that kind of model takes off or more the emotive model takes off, where it's simply reading from external without the use of surgery. Mm -hmm. Surgery is a little scary, especially mm -hmm. brain surgery, but mm -hmm. maybe the emotive model winds up taking off where you're reading the brain externally. Already using fMRI techniques, which clearly is too big and complex and costly to be able to implement for daily, mm -hmm. you know, portable use, but using fMRI techniques, they're already from external brain signaling, they're able to detect an incredible amount of detail. So for example, there's a famous experiment where somebody was exposed to a picture of a giraffe mm. and then an fMRI machine read his, that person's brain and then jet, using AI generated an image of what he, they, the brain thought, what this algorithm thought he was looking at. And it wasn't exactly a giraffe, but it was shockingly mm. close. Mm. And so that was the original image that was done. It, it looked like a short, stocky giraffe, but the coloring was right. The positioning of the body was right. You know, there's a lot of stuff that was, there was more right than wrong with it. Wow. And since then, a whole series of images have been produced. And already you have interfaces like that are, that are kind of brain to machine interfaces mm -hmm. that are increasingly good. For example, at the lab level, I believe this was Neuralink the experiment, they're able to have monkeys be able to drive the game of Pong purely mm -hmm. through thoughts. And they eventually wind up playing Pong pretty well just driven by thoughts. So that kind of connection evolves too. So it's this, this concept of augmentative AI as my assistant, then the only thing you're really debating is the bandwidth of the interface between me and it. Hmm. And the bandwidth winds up getting defined for technology reasons, but also winds up getting limited by social reasons too. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, a lot of ethical decisions to be made about some of those things for sure. So what advice would you give, you know, someone who's younger, maybe right out of college or, you know, is trying to maybe even uh, start a career? Uh, what advice would you give them in terms of how could they go invest into learning more about maybe like the prompt engineering aspect of AI or any of those things? What advice would you give someone like that? Well, you know, the, the, I, was, I was asked on another podcast of what advice should they give their senior in college who doesn't want to be a prompt engineer. And so my retort to that was, we're all prompt engineers, right? So the assumption is that every single white collar on the entire face of the planet mm -hmm. is going to have some augmentative AI that they're interacting with on a daily basis. And guess what? The way they're going to interact, at least for now, is through a prompt, whether that's a textual, a typed textual prompt or that is using natural language processing methods, being able to use voice to be able to interact with it, but you're mm -hmm. going to interact with, with an AI in your professional life, mm -hmm. and it's going to be pretty integral to your job. So we are welcome to the world where we are all prompt engineers. I and I would certainly recommend, you know, learning how to interact with these models. Mm -hmm. it's, going, it's going to be part of your daily life. Yeah, I got four little kids and, you know, we have the remote control with all the voice activated remote control so they can speak to it and tell, you know, show me 
whatever the show that they want to watch, but they go to grandpa and grandma and then try to speak to the remote and it doesn't have voice activated. Remote. <laughs> so they just assume it's supposed to do something, <laughs> but they're already learning prompt That's engineering great. by actually speaking to their remote and giving commands. Uh, so it's kind of crazy how they're being trained so young. Yeah, I think, yeah, certainly this generation of children is going to take, is going to assume that you can talk to a computer and it's going to answer you back in something a little bit better than Siri or Alexa. Yeah. So I think they will grow up knowing that style of interaction with the computer, which is remarkable to my generation, mm -hmm. but normal for their generation. Yeah. So the only problem I see in all that is that I fear that education is going to fail. The educational mm -hmm. system is going to fail them. Yeah. Because here you have a complete paradigm shift in how education is done. And the educational system is, is unlikely to be able to adjust as fast as those children deserve for it mm -hmm. to be adjusted. Yeah. So, but there's already kind of like incredible rays of hope in all this. I would certainly recommend anyone who's interested in education, go watch the Salcon Khan Academy TED presentation on this topic. They're doing, Colin Kahneman is doing incredible stuff of integrating an AI into an educational system based on the simple idea that's a kind of intuitive, well, well understood that the best educational model is one in which there is one-to-one -one mentoring. That's the way people learn the best when there's one-to-one. -one. Obviously, uh, the economics of a classroom doesn't allow for that. But the academic achievement results of that are incredible. And he provides some graphics to show how dramatically the Gaussian distribution changes between 50 kids in a classroom to one teacher down to the one-to-one -one model, what the mm. incredible difference is in educational achievement. And I think we start moving in some direction that looks like that. Not that I can say what the end result winds up looking like, but certainly there's a whole range new, of new tools that wind up coming out. Most to certainly. support education. Yeah, and I think our the old model of just you know, rot memorization of all kinds of random ins, you know, insights, those are probably not the best use of their brains. They should be doing a lot of critical thinking and learning mm -hmm. learning to think, to solve this, you know, problem solving at such you, a young you age. It. That's the tricky part is how much, to do critical thinking, how much you need to have kind of a, uh, what is the term, a mind castle mm -hmm. in which to fit these various concepts. So at some level, you do need to understand complex contexts on a broad range of topics. And at mm -hmm. some level, that does require memorization to be able to have the context. But you're right. The, the value of actually remembering when, you know, what year did Louis XIV rise to the throne <laughs> is maybe not nearly as important in, in a world that it is not just quick recall with a phone, but instant recall because of your augmentative assistant. Most certainly. Well, having, you know, gone through all these life experiences and seen all these industrial trends, if you had to do it all over again, what would you do differently? I don't know. I think, I think I've been pretty lucky. I mean, I, I am a Latino immigrant that grew up in the, in a slum tenement in Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. And I wound up getting to have this very rich career where I've met an incredible number of people. I've lived a life that was far in excess of what certainly the teenage version of me would have expected of myself. So yeah, I, I don't know that I would change anything. I've led a, a very rich life. I've gotten to have a wonderful wife, two incredible children, got to travel all over the world 10 times over, got to meet 
a thousand pound a thousand interesting people that are intellectually engaged and doing amazing things in their lives, etc. So I don't know that I have a what would I change. What advice would you give your younger self? Keep going, you know, this is going to be fun. <laughs> and it has been. It has been. It has been a fun life. Awesome. Well, Armando, I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much for sparing your wisdom with our audience. Well, thank you so much for having me today. I really appreciate it. This episode of Coffee with Closers is brought to you by One IMS, a leading digital marketing agency helping businesses win new customers. To request a free marketing ROI audit, please visit oneims.com. If you enjoyed this video, please share it. To make sure you never miss an episode, please subscribe.